first draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. I want to take a moment to say I hope you are safe and healthy. Thank you for tuning in to this hour of togetherness, where we discuss what unites rather than what divides us. I also want to say this month marks the seventh year First Draft has been on the airwaves. All I can say is I'm stunned. The first show aired on June 3rd, 2013. It's been an amazing seven years, and honestly, when I started, I didn't have a vision beyond two episodes. But here I am, and guess how many author interviews have aired? I know you can't answer me right now, so I'll tell you. 297. Yes, 297 interviews. I'm truly incredulous thinking about all the books read and hours spent editing and thinking about these conversations. I feel so incredibly fortunate to be doing this podcast that I love and sharing it with you. So thank you so much for being on this journey with me, whether you began with interview one or are just joining for your first taste of first draft right now. I'm humbled and honored that you are listening, and I offer all the gratitude in my heart to the 297 authors who have said yes to an interview and have spent an hour of their time with us. I look forward to bringing you more conversations in the years to come. Sometimes I dream about seeing all of you in the same room someday. Who knows? Maybe that can happen. Until then, again, thank you for being here to listen. Coming up, an interview with Vanessa Hua author of Deceit and Other Possibilities. The trade-off of the immigrant parent, they want their child to succeed or to assimilate or to fit in in American society, but that does mean there are aspects that come into conflict with like what their ideal is and what sort of independence their, their child has established. We'll be back with Vanessa Hua in just a bit. First, I want to say to you, thank you for listening. For the last six and a half years, I've been producing at least 40 episodes a year of First Draft. It's a labor of love, but there is also labor involved, time and effort and thought. Whether this is your first listening experience or you are on your 260th episode, I am asking you with humbleness and appreciation if you would consider supporting First Draft as a donating member. You can learn more and donate at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash firstdraftwriters. Your support helps keep conversations like the one you are about to hear going. As our society is changing to independent folks like me producing rich content and meaningful content like that in First Draft, I think we are evolving the model to widely expand the diversity of voices available for the public to tune into. But it takes money, time, equipment, and a lot of heart and sweat to make this content happen. I know there is so much free content out there. In fact, what you are about to listen to is free, but it is not without expense to make. As a thank you for joining the First Draft community, I offer my patrons a lot of extras, the best being ad-free and pitch-free episodes. As a thank you for your patronage, I get you to the interview faster because you'll get your own dedicated feed without this ask. Starting at just $6 a month, you will receive extras from the shows, including cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final episode, writing tips from featured authors, books, and a monthly newsletter. I'm also so grateful I often send extra goodies to my patrons. Please beat the odds of having to listen to this seven times before you join the First Draft community. 
go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. You can donate any amount, and you know it will go to the continuation of these conversations focused on literary craft, content, and practice. I know that right now it's unlikely you are in front of a computer, so I'd like to suggest adding a little reminder for yourself for when you get home to contribute to First Draft. Make a note on your phone, an ink mark on your hand, scribble on a piece of paper, something along the lines of First Draft, reminder, membership matters. Again, patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. You can find out more about the show at firstdraftwriters.com, and please stay tuned at the end of this episode. I'll offer recommendations on similar episodes you can dig into. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell your friends to subscribe. Thank you so much. My guest today is Vanessa Hua, novelist, short story writer, essayist, journalist, and teacher. She is a columnist for the San Francisco Chronicle and has been writing for over 20 years about Asia and the diaspora. She has filed stories from China, Burma, Panama, South Korea, and Ecuador. Her novel is called A River of Stars, and her short story collection is called Deceit and Other Possibilities, which first came out in 2016 but was reissued this year with additional stories. The collection features a vast array of characters, including immigrants and pastors, has-been film stars, and young women who lie to preserve their dignity. Her stories are multicultural and include strong themes about family, identity, the search for acceptance, generational struggles and pressures, and the tension between old world traditions and new world culture. We began the discussion with Vanessa Hua discussing how the themes of her work emerge through what goes unsaid as well as through character. I've always been interested in sort of like those liminal spaces and, you know, people who live in between and with a foot in both worlds. I myself am the daughter of Chinese immigrants. Um, and so I, you know, it's, I think it's also part of how I became a writer, just understanding how different the world inside my home was um, compared to the world outside of it and finding answers through observation, but also through books, reading about other people's lives. And so uh, for me, when I, when I write a story, it always starts with character and with a premise. If I've read something or been thinking about something, I wonder, you know, oh, how, well, how did they get in that situation and how will they find their way out of it? And um, as you probably saw in my stories, they figure their way out of trouble as much as they get themselves into trouble. So um, they're, they're, they're figuring out how to make do with what they have, how to find forms of acceptance, whether that's with their family or with society. Did you feel like when you were growing up, and maybe even now, but I wouldn't think now as much, that you had to hide things from your parents that had to do with the differences in maybe your experiences of America and their experiences of, of immigration? I don't know if it's so much hiding or just sort of acknowledging or realizing from very on that there was just a huge cultural and generational gap that um, my suburban American girlhood, you know, I had my Esprit tote bag in my guest jeans. Um, meanwhile, you know, the fridge was always fully stocked. Meanwhile, they had grown up in wartime China, um, you know, 
and I once said, like, what did you do with leftovers? And my mom said there were no leftovers. Every bit of food was eaten at every meal. And just trying to, like, get my head around that. But, you know, just trying to also, I think growing up, just trying to figure out, like, well, how do I translate, uh, not literally, because my parents both speak English, but, like, how do I make them understand what I'm going through, American culture, on terms that they would understand. Um, but even things like I had friends in high school who their boyfriends were coming over to have dinner with their parents, like in high school. And um, my, you know, I never introduced anyone to my parents until, you know, he, he turned out to be the man I married. Um, and actually, uh, they, it was, it was sort of a funny story. We all went out to brunch and um, to my boyfriend, he thought, oh, we're just I'm meeting her parents for the first time. But to my parents, they were like, this is a sign she's going to get engaged, perhaps not imminently, but, but eventually to this man. And they ordered champagne, the champagne that they had served at their wedding. And so they, to, to my parents, like the meeting was not inconsequential and, you know, versus the broader American culture where it's like, oh, you, you know, you, you know, every bit about like a person's uh, dating life or even teenagers today, like, don't they, you know, they say like, oh, my mom's my best friend or like I text with her multiple times a day. Um, you know, we are, you know, our family loves each other, but it, it just doesn't, it's not going to manifest in that way. Uh, or even, you know, I remember classmates would get notes in their lunches from their mom, their stay-at-home mom who packed their lunch saying like, I love you, have a great day, whereas I had packed my own lunch. So I didn't feel sorry for myself, but it's sort of like my parents were busy. My mom was a scientist, my dad was an engineer, and sort of like school was my job. So, you know, I had to, I had just different responsibilities from early on. In one of the stories, um, it was probably one of my favorite lines in, in all of the stories, the responsibility of deceit, which is about um, the central character and narrator is named Calvin, and he is Asian American and he is gay and he is has not come out to his family yet. And he has a boyfriend and they go to Napa on a trip and he lives near Napa and they run into some friends of his parents when they're at this inn and for the first time he kind of doesn't hide that he's gay, that, that Peter isn't just his roommate and he decides on his way home, even after his father saying when they had watched like pride parades on TV, his dad said, well, those are Thai and Filipino as, as if there couldn't be Chinese people in there. And he has this line and he decides at the end to just go for it and just to bring Peter home and introduce him to his parents and know that everything's going to change. And he says, as much as I concealed from my parents, I needed them to be there to hide from. And I felt ripples of that through all of your stories about the ties to the other generations. And even though you have these secrets, you need them so badly. And I'm wondering if you can talk about that line and if you'd like to talk more about the story. Sure. Yeah. Um, I do have friends um, who were sort of in similar situations, whether uh, it was, you know, they were gay and coming out, or they were dating an older divorced man, or if they were, uh, 
you know, I know someone, I think they're since married, but they were, they were living together, but they had separate phone lines and they lived in another state. You know, they, they figure out a way to sort of uh, keep the peace. Um, but it's a fragile piece, of course. And it's sort of like, you feel like you're fulfilling family obligations, but all the while uh, growing more and more distant um, from your parents. And I mean, that is sort of the, the trade-off of the immigrant parent. They want their child to succeed or to assimilate or to fit in in American society. But that does mean there are aspects that come into conflict with like what their ideal is and what sort of independence their, their child has established. And I, I think that line I might have come up with thinking about another couple I knew where there was just extreme tensions because I think it had to do with religion and um, the, the bride did not have a shared religion um, with the, uh, the groom's, uh, the, boy, uh, the man's parents. And, but just, I think uh, my friend said something not exactly along those lines, but just like, you cannot be whole unless you, you know, to yourself or to your family, unless you kind of just go for it and, and, and come what, come what may. So I'd like to, if if you're open to it, talk about the ending of that story. Two parts of it. One is right when he was about to go in, and this is maybe a page before it ends, he looks through the window and he sees his parents just watching TV, just standing there. And it's like this prosaic moment of their life. And he's kind of reflecting on how everything's going to change. So it's like this pregnant moment that he knows, but they don't know. And then if you care to, I would love to hear more about how you built up to that ending and kind of went back to this prosaic moment. Sure. Great, great question. And thank you so much for seeing so deeply into my work. Um, I actually was thinking of a particular house that I would pass all the time in high school. Um, That was sort of on the main road um, and they had big picture windows and you could just see right in it. And it, it was almost like a, like looking into a fish tank. Um, so that was the house I had in mind. Um, and then in terms of um, the thing is, you know, there is that tension, as you say, because he knows everything is about to change. But to the parents, they're just going about their, um, you know, Sunday night errands before their son stops by for dinner. And um, there is that, you know, he knows something they don't know. He knows things are about to change. And it's sort of like, um, I don't know, the moment before a gun goes off or a ball gets tossed or like there's, I, yeah, there, it's that moment where it's like before it becomes kinetic energy. I think that's sort of um, like the top, the top of a roller coaster. Um, and so in terms of the ending, it flashes forward uh, before going back to that moment. Um, and I, I actually even remember, um, now remember this is one of the oldest stories in the collection. I remember the workshop sort of being all up in arms, like, should she flash forward? Should she just, you know, should he just go in? Um, and for me, I felt like I made that choice because I didn't necessarily want the story to be like, well, what's going to happen? Um, or to me, there was something uh, more satisfying and kind of like, looking ahead before again lingering in that moment before everything changed um and i don't know i don't do that with with every story um or 
you know, there's, there's other ways of managing things narratively where it might hint at what's to come. Um, but I think something about these two characters, um, maybe it's because it's set largely over like a weekend. Um, that's the, the frame of it that it felt like there was some room for expansion to, to flash forward before then moving back to the, the frame of the weekend. I was thinking about this sort of maybe interstitial space or this space before everything changes that you also had in, in your story called The Shot. And this story is uh, there's a young man named Sam and he is at a golf course and he's in the sheriff's reserves and he's having some problems with his wife who's about to leave him because um, she doesn't want kids and he really does and he's cornered her in a few different ways into having kids and it's just not working so he goes to play golf and he meets up with this um, Latino grandfather and and grandson and they get teamed up and they're playing and he's kind of and in the meantime they're being pressured by the people behind them to hurry up they're a bunch of sounds like like just loud guys who are lobbing balls at them and not being very uh very polite and there's a moment where you talk about he's kind of in this middle space where he takes the shot and you follow the ball and you say after he hit his shot he wanted the ball to stay aloft forever and that was when impossible seemed possible, a hole-in-one, a prosperous business, a happy wife. And so you you feel sort of that slow-mo energy of the ball where everything is possible. And it reminded me a little bit of the other ending. And I'm wondering if you see, see that and if crafting that moment had any sort of insight for you. I think, um, you, you know, that's an interesting point, how they're mirrors of each other, although I guess in the shot, uh, things end up rather more badly for the for Sam. Um, but I think uh, the the I guess maybe just to back up, the origin of the story began um, when I was living in Southern California. Um, I was going to grad school at UC Riverside, and we lived in a town called Claremont. Anyway, my husband would go out on weekends to golf, and I um, it was just really intriguing to me that you didn't go necessarily with a group. You would pair up with two or three other strangers to, uh, for a group of four. And I remember one time he was telling me someone started smoking out and like offered him a joint. Then he told me about the existence of cart girls where they just show up and, you know, you can buy alcoholic drinks. And this is not even a country club, right? It's just like a, a public course. But I was sort of really intrigued by the dynamics of it. And that even, particularly in Southern California, there's such um, diversity um, in terms of like, who's playing and who you might run into. And um, I also had separately heard about an incident, um, a couple incidents that I mentioned where a gun was pulled on a golf course and another one in which there were hospitality tents where there were men getting serviced by prostitutes. So all of this, and from all of this kind of like stew, I was like, well, how do I, um, I, I was just very interested. And, and I wrote this story right in the middle of the recession. So, you know, economic downturns were, were on my mind and what impact it was having on people. So, so for Sam, going back to that potential energy, like where was it going to go? And, you know, that main character is a dreamer, but has always felt like an outsider, never felt a, a sense of home and, until he married his, his wife, but you know, that's ending now. And so 
think it was, I don't know. I, I think I was just intrigued by that image of golf. Like I've never played golf. I've tried to, I've gone to the driving range and tried to um, hit it, uh, you know, swung at it. But I, I think I would be one of those golfers who would throw the club in frustration and it would bounce off a tree and hit me in the head and kill me. <laughs> so I, I just was really interested in the idea of why people get involved in such um, a frustrating to me sort of sport and what each element of it could um, could represent in terms of just potential squandered or potential, you know, that moment of, of hang time in which you, you wish so much for everything, but um, gravity um, is still going to overtake you. Yeah. And Sam put so much into the golf course. Like you could see his superstition about golf, which I don't think is uncommon for people who, who play golf necessarily, but he was putting so much weight on the game to determine his whole future. But I was also thinking about superstition in general and how that might fit into your culture. My first job that I ever had was working at the Seattle Chinese Post, and it was me and only one other white person and then all Chinese and I definitely noticed a lot of superstition in that culture. I, I hadn't been exposed to some of that superstition, like certain doors had to be closed at the same time. They couldn't have one open and one closed. And I'm wondering if that is part of it as well. I, I think, well, as I mentioned, my mom's a scientist and my dad was an engineer. So they never were that much into like superstitions like they never had my astrology read they did not seem particularly superstitious as compared to some families I know like other people I know were like oh if your eye is twitching it means someone's going to die or something that other families I knew definitely were engaged in but I am interested in superstition and say proverbs or even some of the Chinese New Year traditions I adopted as an adult because I was, you know, got interested in them. For me, it's more about cultural connection rather than like the universe being ordered that way. Um, but like, for example, I empty all the trash cans before New Year's Day or I get a haircut or I get wear new clothes. That is not something my mom or dad taught me or even my grandma. And for me, I don't know if I am like, if I don't do this, like everything's going to collapse, but it's just nice to feel like you have a reset and who doesn't like a haircut, who doesn't feel lighter if you kind of put some time into yourself. So that's, that's me, how me individually, I, I view those sort of superstitions, but for my characters, yeah, like I think, um, you know, well, but it, it, you know, I think it, it's just interesting because I think immigrants are the children of immigrants. Sometimes in some ways, those immigrant cultures um, end up being more traditional um, or more superstitious than, say, the culture that kept on and modernized in mainland China because, you know, various reasons, communism, cutting back at tradition, calling it superstitious, whereas, you know, overseas communities become reservoirs almost of these traditions. But at the same time, I think superstitions or traditions have a way of sort of evolving, like, you're like, well, I can't get this sort of thing. I'm just going to make do and do this. Or or even like uh, it's popular around Chinese New Year to get $2 bills from the bank and then, you know, iron them and put them in the red envelope. And 
certainly that's not something that existed in like, you know, ancient China, a $2 bill, but it's a way of adapting, even as, you know, adapting a tradition or, or superstition to kind of, you know, transform itself on American soil. And sometimes it's hard to tell the difference between rituals and superstition. Do you have any around how you write? I have two, I have eight-year-old twin boys and, you know, anything that, um, I think it was Zadie Smith who once said, like, I used to be so precious about what kind of pencil I used, (laughs) but now I just like do whatever I can when I can to write. Um, That said, um, there are some things I do that I don't know if I see them as, as ritual, but, um, you know, it's funny. I, I had my writing group met yesterday over uh, over Zoom, and one of them, uh, one of the women, is into this thing called. Have you heard of uh, ob- Oblique Strategies deck? No. It was invented by Brian Eno, the musician, and someone else. But it's these these this deck of cards that's supposed to inspire creativity. Or, and the card um, my friend in my writing group pulled for me. She's like, think of a question. And, um, and I thought of it and then she pulled the card and the card was mechanicalized something idiosyncratic and, uh, mechanicalized something idiosyncratic. And as it happens, I'm right now in sort of the final stages of this draft of my novel. And to me, that actually does seem like how you sort of sum up the writing process like your idios so your your id your creativity but you have to find some way to mechanize it to to engineer it to backwards engineer it um so so for me a ritual isn't like i need a special tea or a special pen or i do have actually have a friend who has um blue as her power color so she has like seven outfits that she always wears that shade of blue so um you know you do what you can you do whatever you can to, to make it happen for yourself. But for me, um, when I think of things that I do do over is I, for example, have a PDF to voice app. Um, so if I upload a PDF, it will read the drafts out loud to me. And I'll do that when I'm running or running errands or out and about, because I think so often with a book length manuscript, parts of the book sort of develop amnesia from one another so this is a way of like being in that world um and also just kind of hearing the rhythm of sentences and that sort of thing um and i guess another ritual might be um or yeah i I guess the question is like what's the difference between ritual and method um another thing i tend to do um is uh i'll upload the file um into my kindle reader so that it kind of just looks different and again that's another way of looking at it um or so so for me it's sort of like there are these methods and i they have a practical side to it but then once i know if i'm reaching the safe the stage in which i'm reading it by kindle i also know to, i'm towards say the end of a revision stage and so there's something satisfying in that even if it's not like lighting sage or or anything like that I was curious, too, about the makeup of your family or maybe your friend group, because in your stories, you had Serbs and Mexicans and Chinese and 
people go to the Philippines and Hong Kong and eat Korean food. And so it, it, it is pretty international. And I'm wondering if you have direct exposure to that. I mean, you live in the Bay Area, so you're surrounded by a lot of diversity. But I was wondering about your personal experience. And then if you have any thoughts to share about your experience or for other people about writing about people that are not like them, like people who want to have diverse characters, but maybe they just don't know a lot about other kinds of people. Great question. So I guess to answer your first question, yes, I've, you know, I'm a lifelong Californian and the stories are a reflection of the world that I'm just very used to that whether as a journalist or for my friend group, my sister-in-law is partner is Armenian. I have other friends who are Armenian, my husband's grandma was an, of a, a Serbian immigrant. So I got elements of that culture. One of my closest friends from the newspaper was son of Korean American immigrants. So, you know, I used to live in the mission district of San Francisco, which is um, beside, you know, working class Latino, also, you know, artists. So to me, it wasn't like I thought, oh, I, I want diverse characters. This is just the setting that I'm very used to, that it seems like the stories are just an extension of what of the world I live in and what feeds my imagination. And so in, in terms of writing outside of myself or writing across the other, as they say, um, I know this is something obviously that has been discussed a lot. And I actually have put together a craft talk on this. And, you know, you know, I think there's a high degree of interest in this. And like, there's a couple things that I think about. Um, Alex Chi, in an essay he wrote a few months ago for Vulture, said something along the lines like, you know, ask yourself, like, check your bookshelf. Do you have anyone um, from that community that you're reading? Um, because I think what he's saying is, please understand that you're entering a conversation that began before you entered it and continues after you leave it. Um, second, it's like, it's important to start from a place of humbleness, not arrogance. And in some ways, I think that runs, uh, it can feel like, well, you're the author, you're the authority, I should be able to say whatever I want. Um, but it, you're, if you're not open to understanding what you're uh, perpetuating is actually a stereotype, it's actually a character, um, you know, flat and not round, um, then, you know, you, you need to understand, you know, you're clearly you are going to make choices uh in your stories um it ultimately rests on you but you have to kind of almost start from a place of open-mindedness and then i think the other thing that's really important is to have that ongoing relationship that you're not going in and extracting something and then um you're you know you're never to return and um i was counseling someone um a friend of a friend who was um, an Italian immigrant and she wanted to write about environmental issues. She wanted to write about First Nations uh, people from Canada. And she said, you know, I emailed people, but they never got back to me. You know, the, her impulse was like, yes, I don't want to just have a white savior story. But on the other hand, I, I asked her, like, can you truly find out like what sort of existing efforts are already being done? And how do you amplify that rather than saying like, hey, can you come to me? Can you help me? How can I help you first? Um, or, you know, how can we just have a relationship? So in the instances, for example, when I wrote about um, 
a, a, you know, a Mexican American immigrant or a Korean American pastor. I had friends from those faith and ethnic, um, you know, backgrounds to, to read it. Um, and, you know, I will caveat, like, in no way does a sensitivity reader, you know, give you a pass, like, you can't say, like, oh, I'm certified, <laughs> my story's um, allowable. But it's, it is, it is uh, an important um, data point. And, and you have to be, you know, you might think like, and I, I think sensitivity readers actually work best when you have an existing relationship, when you have, when it's a friend, when it's a coworker, when there's a sense of um, back and forth and not, again, just like, oh, I'm coming in to do my investigation and um, I'm going to take from this community, which maybe has been taken from quite a bit um, over the years of the decades. So, um, yes, I guess my advice would be to establish a real relationship and to to get reading from um, what's coming out of those communities. In one of the stories um, about an Asian American family where the girl goes into a school in Indiana, um, she she's going there legitimately, but she notices that all these very wealthy Asians have gone there, and she sort of becomes their fake tutor, trying to teach them about the ways of succeeding there, and then ends up writing papers for them, and, and then ends up sort of farming out the papers, and they get caught plagiarizing. And that was that story. Um, if you want to say anything more about it, please do. Um, had also one of my favorite endings. Oh, thank you. Um, so that story, its genesis began when I was visiting my sister in Indiana, and I, we were talking to another professor um, about, um, you know, the influx of Chinese students, and they were saying like, yeah, all the undergrads drive like the. Porsches and the grad students drive, the Chinese grad students drive the, you know, the beat up cars because the undergrads tended to be wealthy and the grad students who are all coming on fellowships, you know, were all, were all much poorer. So like, you know, one had come in sort of like because they could afford it and the others like had come in based on their, their merit. Um, but she mentioned they, some rumor of like a cheating ring where people got paid off in, in purses. And so that sort of inspired the beginning of that story. And, um, and but the then outsourcing uh, it, the cheating or the, the writing of the papers, that was my own touch <laughs> because it just sort of like, I just thought of like, well, how would you sort of um, expand your business in a way? It's always about finding someone else downstream who will do it for cheaper than, than what you'll, um, than what you yourself could do. Um, but, you know, I think this is one of those stories that I might return to for, for some longer, who knows, but I am just really interested in sort of um, this culture clash where so many students are coming so rapidly and are being viewed a certain way by the university, but, you know, there's huge cultural change um, that is sometimes uh, maybe baffling to you know, this kind of students who were going there before. I remember my sister was saying that like this Chinese food truck started showing up on campus, but you had to sort of like know how to order. Like it wasn't necessarily online or maybe it was through WeChat, the Chinese messaging service. So, you know, the food was really good and it was well-priced, but it's sort of like you had to know. And, and so just things like that in the places where you wouldn't necessarily see such a huge influx 
effects of immigration um, in years past. I, I just think those are such really interesting uh, places in which to investigate what what that how that dynamic plays out. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? Um, I am going to read from Maxine Hong Kingston's um, book, Woman Warrior. And this is from the chapter entitled White Tigers. My mother and father and the entire clan would be living happily on the money I had sent them. My parents had bought their coffins. They would sacrifice a pig to the gods that I had returned from the words on my back and how they were fulfilled. The villagers would make a legend about my perfect filiality. My American life has been such a disappointment. I got straight A's, Mama. Let me tell you a true story about a girl who saved her village. I could not figure out what was my village. And it was important that I do something big and fine or else my parents would sell me when we made our way back to China. In China, there were solutions for what to do with little girls who ate up food and threw tantrums. You can't eat straight A's. When one of my parents or the immigrant villagers said, feeding girls is feeding cowbirds, I would thrash on the floor and scream so hard I couldn't talk. I couldn't stop. What's the matter with her? I don't know. Bad, I guess. You know how girls are. There's no profit in raising girls. Better to raise beasts than girls. I would hit her if she were mine, but then there's no use wasting all that discipline on a girl. When you raise girls, you're raising children for strangers. Stop that crying, my mother would yell. I'm going to hit you if you don't stop. Bad girl, stop. I'm going to remember never to hit or scold my children for crying, I thought, because they will only cry more. So um, that passage really resonated with me, not because um, I felt like girls were treated differently in my family, actually. Um, my mom, uh, my dad, like, totally respected my mom's careers and had once said, like, I married your mom, you know, I'm, like, for love. And he's, like, because I wanted smart kids. But I love that gap in which she's, uh, the, the character is, like, fantasizing about being follow on, about rescuing her family in feudal China. But then sort of returning to her mundane daily life where she's talking about getting straight A's and that sort of. Just, I mean, there's something actually very funny about it. I laughed out loud when I first read that passage and sort of that white space between the fantasy life, the myth life, and her, her reality. Um, but it was, it, I, just, I just thought it was so wonderfully done, just sort of like looking at those cultural gaps, looking at those actual white spaces in which so much is left unsaid. Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft. I'm going to read from Room at the Table. I started in college back in the mid to late 90s, but could not finish writing until last year, 2019. Um, so I'm going to read from the opening, Room at the Table. Grace had the urge to introduce herself again, though that would be insulting. They were family, but it had been years since she and her cousin Daniel had seen each other. The volcano erupted right before he landed in Manila, he told her. With his spiky black hair, he appeared not much older than we had when they had roughhoused at family reunions, weddings, and funerals. It was dark at noon. We tied bandanas around our faces to breathe, said his wife, Phyllis. After postings to Kenya, Thailand, and the Philippines, they had returned to the Bay Area to plant a church. They were also expecting their son, due next month, would be the first child of the next generation, the firstborn of the American born. 
Phyllis started coughing, and Daniel left to fetch a glass of water. Her cousin had become a stranger. Seeing him tonight, she realized how much she had missed him. On the radio, a commentator mentioned Saddam Hussein's trial and holidays for the troops in Iraq. Grace searched the dial for Christmas songs and then dug out the bulging brown grocery sacks of decorations she fetched from the garage. What year are you in college? Phyllis asked. She unfurled a gold garland. Grace winced. Her attempt at adulthood, her bobbed haircut and tailored shirt and trousers from a Williamsburg boutique near her apartment had failed. I graduated eight years ago, class of 97. I'm sorry, I should have known, Phyllis said. I'm bad at remembering those things. You've been away, Grace said. You know that saying, Asian don't raisin, Grace said. Phyllis laughed. Still, though. Do you want to talk a little more about why you chose that? Oh, sure. So, um, as I mentioned, um, it was a story that I just couldn't quit. And I couldn't quite, I think for the longest time, I did not, I think in the early drafts, um, Grace was very much an observer watching this showdown between her cousin and her father. And I, I had to figure out what bearing that showdown between, you know, the missionary cousin and her father who demanded uh, sort of a filial, um, wanted a filial children. Um, she was just sort of watching it. But I, I, I had to figure out what stake it had in her own life and why it felt so, I don't want to say fraught, but it just felt so important that like something um, maybe as in this case of the um, the responsibility of deceit that like the cousin, how her father dealt with her cousin and his disobedience almost felt like a test bubble for how she might be more open with her family and what were the sacrifices and what were the consequences and who her parents had become in her, her time away. And that, you know, she, at a certain point, like she needed to be done um, with hiding to be able to sort of move on with her life, that closing herself down um, as much as she thought it was to, to everyone's kind of compartmentalize really just meant she was going to lose everything that she loved. Where do you write? So I write in a number of places. Um, right now, in the time of social distancing, I'm not going into the Writer's Grotto, but that's a community uh, workspace in San Francisco that I'm a part of and miss dearly right now. Um, but I have a home office um, that, uh, with my desk from high school, um, and it overlooks this hill um, studded with pine and oak trees and is quite busy with wild turkeys um, and deer and the neighborhood cat and an occasional raccoon. Um, but also now that again, since the shelter in place, um, I, you know, I try to squeeze in wherever I can, whether it's something, um, before bedtime while I'm in bed or, um, you know, if I'm trying to oversee the, the boys, uh, doing their grammar lesson or their social studies lesson, you know, as they, uh, quote unquote, work at their own own pace. <laughs> um, I sit in the room and kind of uh, monitor, but then I also try to dash things off. So it's it's a variety of things, a variety of places. And what do you do, or where do you go to get away from writing? I did always love to work in a daily swim, and that part of my routine is now gone. Um, but I also 
um, would go on runs or walks, which fortunately I can still do. Although it's usually with my boys in tow and, you know, it's become almost like a, 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 a you know, I, I keep trying to seek out those secret hiking trails that aren't so crowded and as a result um have found some very new beautiful places in the east bay hills um but yeah i definitely believe that it's important to step away from the computer that the only way you're going to access um where your work needs to end up to access you know the the, the answer that's lurking in your subconsciousness is to to get moving and to be in nature or to be outside who do you show your work to first to get feedback I think for sort of on the fly feedback um, or just sort of like, oh, I just wrote this thing I'm excited about, um, I'll definitely send it to my husband, who is not a writer, but a, a, a great reader. Um, I am also part of two different writing groups with um, one that's been together since 2004 and another one that was ongoing before I joined it last year. Um, but I also have a, a couple friends that, you know, it, it just depends. I know everyone's so busy, but like you, I just, I have at least maybe three friends. I know that if I say like, look, I really need eyes on this. Um, there's some deadline coming up or I'm, you know, I feel stuck. They will, they will look at it overnight. They will look at it within a few hours. So I feel very fortunate for that. How have you dealt with rejection? I think uh, being a journalist has, which requires a lot of pitching, so to speak, even if you're in a newsroom, you still have to sell your story to your editor and they have to then in turn sell it to the other editors. And then as a freelancer, you, you know, you write up a story pitch um, for different articles or essays you want to write. So I'm very used to getting a rejection um, or, or that, that whole process where it doesn't, you know, it still stings when I get the rejection or the non-answer. Um, but I have also felt that if I don't apply, um, you know, I may have slim chances, but if I don't apply or, or, you know, send out work, then I'll, then I'll have no chance at all. You have to get yourself in the practice of putting your work, if you think it's ready, out into the universe. And um, a friend of mine who took training from Creative Capital said that she was told that if you are not getting rejected 90% of the time, that means you're not applying to enough things. So it's just, it's just something to think about. I know I do have some friends who they're wonderful writers, but they sent to journals, maybe a handful of them and then never sent it again. Cause they just, um, I mean, it's hard. It's still hard. No one, no one likes to get that um, rejection, but it's just, it's a part of a writer's life. Sometimes you'll get something and sometimes you won't. And it's just, knowing that whoever on the other end of it is human too and might have different tastes or might be tired that day or, you know, what, whatever it may be, like you move on and submit somewhere else. And what is your favorite word? I was thinking a lot about this and I think uh, I'm going to choose glimmer because I like what it conjures um, both in the mind's eye and both in the way it sounds. Um, it's not onomatopoeia, but in a way I feel like it could be just like that, that mm -mm sound is like the way light might sort of glint um, or glimmer, so to speak, off of something. And I just, and there's something about glimmer that is about uh, the liminal, about that in-between space where it's shining and not shining um, that I think really appeals to me. 
Well, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. I love this conversation. It was such a such a pleasure. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing. My guest was Vanessa Hua, author of Deceit and Other Possibilities. If you like today's show, check out my interview with Yang Huang, whose story collection, My Old Faithful, presents a series of linked family stories. You can find that interview in the entire First Draft archive of more than 260 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips from my guests, books, and more. Some clips from this month's interviews that patrons will receive as extra include an additional 25 minutes collectively of interviews with Vanessa Hua, Sumon Kidd, and Mary South, plus writing tips from some of these same authors. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, so please go to www.patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with Sue Monk Kidd, Anne Enright, Tara Shea Nesbitt, and Lori Gottlieb. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing, a reality every week. Please stay healthy out there, and I hope this podcast makes the time at home more pleasant. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.